welcome to today's conversation in our Collaborative Transformation podcast series, Driving the Deal, Focus on Private Equity Investments in Healthcare and Life Sciences. My name is Chris Borland. I co-head McDermott's Global Private Equity Practice and focus my practice on representing private equity funds that are making investments in healthcare and life sciences businesses. Our team advises clients throughout the life cycle of an investment from leading the initial acquisition to serving as trusted counsel for the portfolio company's ongoing business and regulatory issues and eventual exit. At McDermott, we pride ourselves in bringing deep industry expertise to our private equity clients in the healthcare space and have been recognized as the top healthcare private equity law firm in the US. As a result, we interact regularly with other leaders from across the industry. Our podcasts bring you into these conversations so you can hear firsthand from some of the key figures across healthcare private equity. One of the issues that has been front of mind lately for many of our clients is the world of restructuring and bankruptcy. 2020 brought a global liquidity crunch to many companies and healthcare was not spared from that. We have been working closely with our healthcare clients and in particular, our healthcare clients that are private equity funded to deal with this liquidity crunch and its impact on their business. Today, I'm excited to be joined by my colleague, Felicia Perlman. Felicia is a partner and the global co-head of McDermott's Restructuring and Insolvency Practice Group. Felicia, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us, as a bankruptcy lawyer, what is going on with bankruptcies in the United States right now? There were a few notable bankruptcies early after the COVID-19 pandemic hit, you know, a number in retail, but we have not really seen what some expected to be a wave of bankruptcies throughout the last year. Why is that? You know, it's interesting. Many thought that the uh, the pandemic and the economic impact of the pandemic would lead to a huge increase in bankruptcies. And it did for the large bankruptcies. Last year, there were actually more bankruptcies of companies over a billion dollars of assets than any other year. Um, you mentioned retail. There was a lot in retail, a lot in oil and gas. Um, one in healthcare where we represented a quorum um, but other than that, you're right. It really, there wasn't an uptick. And I think that when you stop and think about it, that's not surprising. As an initial matter, there was a lot of uncertainty. It's hard for lenders or sponsors or other parties in interest to make an informed decision about value and determine whether they should put more money into a business or default when you have so little understanding of the duration of the pandemic and what things are going to look like on the back end. So what happened instead is they kicked the can down the road and entered into forbearances or other short-term fixes, extending the time to make decisions till the back end. And first it was for 90 days and then another 90 days. And we're still in that period of those extensions. In addition to that, once you got a few months into the pandemic, you had a lot of money. You have the government stimulus money, and then you had uh, private money from, from lenders, sponsors, and, and other sources that kind of flooded the economy looking for places to go to work and providing liquidity to the businesses. Um, so right now, all the businesses or many businesses have sufficient liquidity on their balance sheets 
much of that liquidity is covering up distress for some of the businesses, but we won't really see the impact of that till we get to the back end of the pandemic and can evaluate what uh, different industries are going to look like. Yeah, I saw um, uh, today, the day we're recording this and tomorrow there's three IPOs per day scheduled. I just saw that GameStop is considering an equity issuance to fundraise for you know their continuing efforts to survive as a going concern. So yeah, the equity markets are providing capital, debt markets are providing capital. So that's kind of staved off, I guess, this you know potential flood of bankruptcies. I know this is a hard question, but is there a time that you expect this to change in the coming months? Yes, I couldn't tell you exactly when, but I think what you're going to get to the, whenever you officially declare the end of the pandemic, right? When we return back to to normal, or what I'm going to say is uh, a new normal, you'll have the end of the government stimulus money going into the economy. You'll have the beginning of potential recoupment of some of that money, repayment of, of loans. And you'll have parties really needing to evaluate what the long-term health of the businesses are. And then you will have fallout. Um, How much will really be dependent in part on how management has been able to make changes during the pandemic in the different industries and also how the industries um, do or don't return to normal. One of the issues that you're going to see is you're now lending into great uncertainty. You you mentioned GameStop. Um, You know, AMC went to the equity markets earlier and I think exceeded many parties' uh, expectations as to how that was going to be received. You know, are these industries going to go back to pre-pandemic operations? Are you going to have consumers going back to, to movie theaters, going back to retail in the same way they were before? I think many people think not. And then you're going to have to see what the fallout is. Yeah. So if management planned for a different normal or a new normal going forward, they may have a chance for success. But if not, that may result in a restructuring or even a bankruptcy filing. Yes. And I think that, you know, look, there's still a lot of capital out there in the market now. Um, and a lot of capital is going out under, uh, you know, loan documents that don't have a lot of uh, covenants, a lot of you know, triggers that will result in defaults also. And that could provide some benefit to these businesses, keeping them out of default and bankruptcy for some period of time. So, Part of it will also depend on as we move from here to the back end of the pandemic, um, what happens with the documentation? Do you start to have lenders tightening up their terms and asserting more control or not? When you have so much money in the out there in the economy, lenders tend to be more flexible because they want to put the money to work, even if it's uh, without a lot of control in the terms. That makes sense. Yeah. So what what kind of industries are you and your colleagues in restructuring and the restructuring organizations that you work with? What industries are, are of particular concern 
as we as we hopefully start to pivot here in the coming months. Um, absolutely. You, let me start with probably hospitality, hospitality travel. That is one of the uh, industries that's the forefront of all of the restructuring folks to talk about. You have people looking to plan their vacations, right? So there's the sense that the travel industry will come back. But if you stop and think about it, um, a lot of travel really tied to work travel, not vacation travel. How are people going to be going back to work? I think most of us feel that we're going to be traveling less than we used to. Um, we've gotten used to doing meetings over Zoom. I've done court hearings, including trials with witnesses over Zoom. Some of that will go back to in-person, but a lot of that is going to stay over Zoom. I think that people don't miss the vast amount of travel we used to do. Um, mm -hmm. And from a client perspective, it, it's hard to argue that it's value add to fly from Chicago to New York for a one or two hour meeting and come back as opposed to just click on a link on your calendar. Um, mm -hmm. What does that mean for the hospitality industry? What does that mean for hotels, for airlines, um, even restaurants? And it means a fundamental change. Um, a lot of the valuations right now don't seem to be taking that into account. So that's going to be an industry that we're going to be watching very closely. Related to that industry in many ways is the real estate industry. You know, a lot of the real estate is hotel related or restaurant related. But if you look at the other industries where um, REITs or major real estate uh, investors have a significant amount of money, you have office space. Um, there's a lot of talk in terms of how businesses are going to change their footprint and how that's going to impact real estate valuations. Um, high-end apartments in major cities. You have a lot of people who moved out of uh, you know, New York, particularly with the pandemic. Our real estate value is going to go back up there and how is that going to impact um, real estate developers? Um, and then you know, for, from a healthcare point of view to tie real estate and healthcare together, you know, senior living has been clobbered during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You had the initial impact on the pandemic um, with the deaths in the senior living facilities that reduced census, reduced the number of people moving in. Um, most of the large senior living entities are, you know, have huge uh, impacts on the REITs where they have a significant amount of properties in there and are also often lenders to the REITs. And what happens with that industry on the back end will impact uh, the REIT portfolios and the lenders into real estate as well. I think that most people see that as an industry that is fundamentally going to change on the, on the back end um, because yeah. of the reduction in census as well as the increase in uh, in costs to run those facilities safely with what mm -hmm. we now know about COVID and how diseases can spread yeah. as well. So sticking there on healthcare, um, we're not yet seeing a very significant wave of healthcare bankruptcies, but I assume you're seeing some restructuring and some out of court work 
with healthcare businesses. You know, what are what are you seeing there with healthcare businesses that were hit particularly hard by the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I do think that's a, a, a good point to make when you, we initially started our conversation that there weren't as many bankruptcies as people expected. Sometimes it's hard to tell what's going on in the restructuring world because while there might not be bankruptcy filings, uh, there often continues to be out-of-court restructurings where we are successfully able to um, do a transaction that improves the financial condition of a company without filing it for bankruptcy. You know, in healthcare, there has been a good deal of that, although I think we expect it to increase more on the back end of the pandemic. Senior living has, without a doubt, been the hardest hit part of the healthcare industry, as we discussed. In addition, throughout the first, I'd say, six to nine months, there was a significant impact on uh, a lot of the, the PPMs, particularly in dental, derm, eye care, what I would say are more elective types of practices. Or retail, sometimes we call them. Yeah, kind of yes. retail. Yes. Yeah. You know, part of that was because, you know, patients, individuals only wanted to go for essential services. Nobody wanted to, to leave their homes, certainly go to see a doctor or anything that was close contact as all of those were. Um, yeah, I just was at a dentist appointment two days ago and the dentist said they're still at like about 75% of their patient flow. Now, my dentist happens to be located downtown Chicago where people aren't coming. So, so there's still this avoidance of, of certain services. And you also have, there's avoidance, but even those who are going back, they're often spreading out visits instead of going every six months. We'll go every year. We recognize we should go, but we don't really need to go as often. And the practices from an economic point of view are never going to pick up on that income they lost when nobody was coming in. So that hole is something that's going to have to be dealt with, um, with lenders or sponsors to, to make sure that that can be filled. Um, sometimes there was a reduction in cost because they were able to cut a deal with landlords for rent or their employee costs went down. But very rarely was it where it really was a wash. There was some sort of loss. And what we're seeing coming out of it, you also have with increased unemployment numbers, um, a loss of health insurance. So individuals are going to doctors when necessary, but not for all the ancillary um, types of services. And we're saying, seeing the same thing in the life science and with uh, life science companies whose drugs are more more elective, more wellness oriented, being hit and having troubles in a way that life science companies where the drugs are, are more essential and, and necessary for a patient where they're surviving better. I think that you're also going to have fallout in the healthcare industry on the back end when the government decides what it's doing with the Medicare advance payments and whether they're going to recoup those payments or not. Um, many that received those payments didn't account for it in a way, recognizing that it was just receiving money earlier. It wasn't extra money. So if the government starts recouping those, those payments, 
the providers will be providing services for which they have already received payment. And that's going to be a huge liquidity hit um, mm-hmm. down the road. It's, it's amazing that that it's amazing that we had yet another relief bill that didn't really address that. No. <laughs> it didn't address it at all. No, um, it's not, which is um, unfortunate because it really makes it hard for um, the providers to to address it. There's a lot of uncertainty with that. I talk to a lot of providers who say that if those Medicare advance payments kind of become grants where they aren't recouped, that financially they'll end up fine on the back end. But if they're going to be recouped, they're not. And, and that they really don't have a solution to that. And they're making decisions now without certainty regarding that. Yeah. Um, I know I have a number of clients that are in that position that 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 advanced payment money is critical kind of funding that right now they are holding a reserve, but the availability of that reserve is going to be a live or die issue later this year. You know, and you have the same thing with the CARES Act grants that, that the healthcare providers are only allowed to retain CARES Act grants to the extent that they compensate them for losses incurred because of COVID, but there's been an incredible lack of clarity as to what that means. And the CARES Act itself has changed several times, um, providing more and less clarity and has added language about the government enforcing that and seeking to recoup funds from entities that received those grants that didn't have losses that correspond to it. So you have healthcare providers having reserves for those as well when they're uncertain as to whether or not they're going to meet the standards. Mm-hmm. So right now there's just just great lack of clarity for many of these providers. It sounds like the lenders that you're kind of involved with on behalf of some of these businesses are still giving them a little more rope to to you know c- continue operating you know, until there is a little more clarity. Yeah, I think so. I think they don't see a benefit. The lenders don't see a benefit to defaulting parties that may be able to work themselves out of this um, because they don't really want the keys to these businesses either, particularly in the healthcare space, you know, even more than others, the, the problem that a lender has taking a healthcare business with the regulatory overlay is even more problematic. And lenders are being hit throughout their portfolios as opposed to at a regular time where you might have certain borrowers that are having difficulty and you're addressing them more one-off. You have many lenders where their whole portfolio is struggling. So for them to choose not to forbear and kick the can down the road and really call defaults across their portfolio is not going to yield the best results for them either. So I think that as long as management has been uh, realistic and thoughtful in its interaction with the lenders. You know, more often than not, we're seeing lenders give them time. At some point, that will stop. Um, you know, we've seen problems more often when there just hasn't been a good relationship between the lenders and the borrowers, a lack of trust, a lack of credibility, um, or when borrowers haven't taken some of the necessary actions to at least make a bad situation better mm-hmm. show mismanagement or lack. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're, 
you and I both deal with private equity fund managers who are handling a portfolio of businesses that have managed through the last 12 months. What is some of the guidance that you're giving to fund managers that have a company that maybe has a thinner balance sheet at this time uh, is maybe looking at the potential recoupment of those advance payments and preparing for that. You know, what should they know about preparing a company for a potential restructuring exercise? The first thing is really less from a financial and, and perhaps a overly legal matter. But you know, the first thing we always talk about really is process and corporate governance and making sure particularly in the private equity situation where you have um, a sponsor involved, that there is appropriate corporate governance in place at the portfolio company. Um, And the process that was in place to evaluate options is, is clean so that nobody can look back and challenge that. As part of that process, it, you want to make sure you get good guidance from good advisors. Um, counsel, financial advisor who's necessary so that if board actions are looked at, um, it's clear that the diligence was done and that the board was properly advised and spent the time to evaluate the information. Past that, some of the key decision factors are, first and foremost, it's really important that companies pay attention to liquidity. We have seen many times over the past year companies you know, looking at the numbers on their balance sheet, but not remembering where those numbers came from, not, re- not paying attention to the fact that while it looks like they have a lot of liquidity, a lot of that money isn't money from operations. It's money from Medicare advance payments, money from PPP loans, money from other places, which isn't the same as their regular cash flow. And if you don't recognize that, it's hard to evaluate the financial health of the entity. So that's first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Make sure you know your debt documents. When are liquidities, when are maturities coming up? It could be really hard to refinance looking over the next year if the company is, is struggling, if the industry itself is in question because of a uh, uncertainty about what the new normal will be, um, if there continues to be uncertainty with Medicare advance payments, PPP loans, or uh, the financial positions and liquidity generally. So you need to start earlier to look to refinance if you have an upcoming maturity. And if you don't, you could end up in a position where that really becomes the, uh, the key trigger point. And you then give additional uh, leverage to your lenders as well. So pay attention to the maturities. Make sure you're very aware of, uh, from a a lender point of view of of the covenants and that you are not going to have a uh, unexpected default. One of the things we saw come up over the past year is uncertainty about financial covenants and what money did and did not count in those calculations. So make sure you pay attention to that and you have a uh, thoughtful, clear explanation about those calculations. Um, yeah, because that's a potential surprise right there. Yep. Maybe you've been operating well, all of a sudden lenders you know, shift into a different phase and start to look at the calculation of the covenants a little closer. 
and they may come to the realization that, hey, we've been giving them credit for some things that they're not due credit for. So actually, this business is in worse position than we, we thought they were. Well, and I'll tell you that when we've spoken to financial advisors about the calculations that they're seeing for the covenants and whether they are including some of the government funds in those calculations or not, um, it's been very inconsistent what we've been hearing back. So there isn't a clear um, answer. Yeah. But unfortunately, what that ends up often being is that those who don't need to include that money don't. And those that are more financially troubled who need to include that money to remain in compliance do, which could create an, an issue um, on the back end. And the other is see if you have buckets that you're unaware of. We've seen that several times throughout this as well, where there were unencumbered assets or um, other ways that a company could improve its liquidity without needing relief from its current lenders. And they weren't aware of it until we took a look at the documents um, and really worked through them and then found some very valuable holes or extra buckets in the docket. And then the last would be from just a pure business plan point of view, pay attention to what the new normal is and don't assume your business will be the same on the back end because those who uh, assume that are more likely to be impacted and need restructuring than those who are paying attention and adapting as we come out of this to the changes in the economy. Yeah, that makes sense. How about... Um specifically practice management businesses. Uh, we talked about a few earlier um, in, in dental, dermatology, ophthalmology. Um, if a fund manager has a practice management investment that may be getting a little thin on the balance sheet front, what are some things to think about there in advance of a potential restructuring exercise? Yeah, I think that you know, one of the key things to, to understand and to try to address up front is the contracts and agreements with the doctors and the relationship with the doctors. That's where the value really lies in the PPMs. And we've seen often where if parties don't focus on that, the doctors can leave, right? And they take the value of the business with them. So from a contract point of view and economic point of view, see how the physicians are compensated, understand how well they are or are not aligned with the, the value of the business going forward. It's something we've seen come up several times as sponsors or lenders are looking to put more money in is wanting to understand the physician alignment. It's really challenging given you know the anti-kickback and other regulatory issues to make sure that you can create an environment that is in compliance with the, the regulatory limitation limitations, but still provide physician alignment and um, allow for there to be, you know, the, the PPMs to get the value from the physician relationships. Mm -hmm. The earlier you focus on that and uh, the better off you are, it's much easier to address that, not in the context of a restructuring than in the context yep. of a restructuring. Yep. But that yep. is probably the key issue on the patient side. And I think, I guess this goes over to the physician side as well, 
if you do end up in a restructuring, communication is key. You know, unlike other industries where you know parties go into bankruptcy, we as consumers continue to use and buy goods and services from entities in bankruptcy. It's become part of you know just a different business transaction these days. Mm-hmm. I think in healthcare it's more sensitive because while somebody might go into a retailer and buy a good, even if the retailer's in bankruptcy, they think of twice when it's their doctor wanting to make sure that the level of care will stay the same. Um, we have found this can be um, compensated for with communication and, and making it clear to the doctors, to the patients, what the nature of the transaction is, what you're trying to accomplish and how it won't impact uh, patient care in any way. But if you're not careful and don't pay attention to those communications, it could further erode value. Is there anything unique in a healthcare restructuring related to the reimbursement system that healthcare providers uh, deal with? Yeah, you know, the reimbursements have two uh, unique issues to them in a restructuring, or at least two. You know, one is just the timing. It's a very different timing of money coming in than you have in in most other industries where, you know, either, you know, goods and services are paid for right away or, you know, vendors pay on a very uh, regular 30, 60 day schedule. The reimbursements, particularly government reimbursements, um, don't work as smoothly and you have a, a, a delay there and that delay often extends during a restructuring at least slightly. So making sure you have an understanding of the cash flow. Um, mm-hmm. And the other is, you know, the agreements in a bankruptcy, the Medicare agreements particularly, have to really be evaluated. You often have in the Medicare overpayment liability and what's going to happen with that, depending on what court you're in, is the government able to recoup the overpayment during the bankruptcy impacting your liquidity or do they need to wait to the back end? And that differs depending on where you file. Um, if you're looking to sell that business, what happens with that overpayment liability? Well, does it go to the purchaser or can it remain with the estate? And that really impacts the value. And we've mm-hmm. seen many entities try to litigate with the government over some of these and then they often have the ability just to stop payment. And we've seen that happen as well. And obviously that can be um, pretty catastrophic for, for healthcare entities when they're not receiving any of those reimbursements. Is there any benefit to having uh, reimbursement from third-party payers um, vis-a-vis, you know, kind of comparing it to other businesses? So in another business, you know, some suppliers may see an impending bankruptcy and stop shipping you new goods, for example, you know, but health insurers, you know, may not be aware of that as much <laughs> as a supplier to a JCPenney, for example, and may more kind of just process the bills that come in. Is there ever any kind of benefit? No, I being- do think, you know, from a private payer point of view, absolutely. Um, we have not seen significant hiccups or, or delays in payment from private payers. The issues have been much more with the government reimbursement. We've actually seen, uh, this was more earlier on in the pandemic, Um, some of the private payers step up to help um, 
maintain the viability of some of the healthcare providers and, and make sure to process reimbursements uh, quickly and, and understand uh, their role in, in keeping healthcare providers uh, open and solvent. So mm-hmm. yes, I do think that there is. I also think that there is in a court system in general, um, a benefit that you have if you're a healthcare provider going through a restructuring and that like everybody recognizes the import of what you do and the impact on individuals if um, you can't provide the services to your patients that you provide, which is very different than um, a, a retailer or a widget maker where it's like, okay, we have one more or less widget wake- maker. It really doesn't have an impact. Courts are very sensitive to that. They understand um, their role in making sure that, that patients receive the right quality of care um, and that care providers have the liquidity to provide that. So I do think that the restructuring um, process has adapted well from a healthcare point of view to help allow healthcare entities to restructure successfully. It's a fascinating time, I'm sure, in your world. Uh, Thank you for sharing a little bit with us. Uh, Felicia, where can our listeners uh, reach you? Give us your email address. Of course, my email address is fperlman, P-E-R-L-M-A-N, at mwe.com. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks for being with us. That does it for today's conversation. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed hearing from Felicia. Please feel free to contact me at any time by sending an email to kwerling, K-W-E-R-L-I-N-G, at mwe.com. And for more insights and analysis about healthcare private equity investments, check out McDermott's Healthcare and Life Sciences News blog, at healthcarelifesciencesnews.com. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2021, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.